please rise as you are able for the scripture lesson, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who, told, who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Grace. You can be seated. We are continuing today in our series on the book of Revelation entitled Famous Last Words. This last book of the Bible is a letter, actually, uh, written from the Apostle John uh, to seven churches in first century Asia who are trying to stay faithful to Jesus in a faithless world. And these seven churches are actually addressed individually in chapters 2 and 3, and that's where we are now walking through those individual addresses. But we got to remember throughout this whole time, these letters are also written to us. It's written to the church in every age who is trying to figure out what it means to be faithful amidst the social, the political, the spiritual challenges of a culture that is either more or less hospitable to the Christian faith. So what we're, we're seeking to learn from these churches in Revelation, what it means for us to be the church in Madison, Wisconsin today. And there are, there are these two assumptions underneath these letters that I want to discuss briefly, because one, I don't want to assume that, that we all believe this, that it, I don't want to take for granted that we all agree on this. And plus, uh, also, because it reminds us of the overall purpose of the book of Revelation. So two assumptions real fast. The first assumption is that the world is divided into two realms, and that's heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, two realms. And I think we're all agreed on the earth part, right? We, we believe in the earth, unless you're a matrix enthusiast. Maybe we're all lying in soup capsules. I don't know. Uh, but I think we should believe in the earth. Uh, but uh, the heaven part cannot be empirically verified. But the story of the scripture says the very first verse in the Bible has God creating two realms, heaven and earth. The visible realm of earth where human beings dwell and the invisible realm of heaven where God dwells. And these two realms are separated by a veil that is more or less thin. But as the story unfolds, we see that this veil is made permanent because of human sin. Because human sin alienates us from God and from the life of heaven. But friends, the big story of the Bible is that God is that of God crossing over that veil in the person of Jesus Christ. God became man. The invisible God made himself visible. The man of heaven became a man of dust for the purpose of reconciling us and the whole creation back to God. In fact, the very last scene in the Bible is this grand consummation of Jesus' work as heaven literally comes down to earth and the two are made one. 
There will no longer be a veil. We will see God face to face. But in the meantime, right now, the veil remains. And notice we are taught to pray like we just prayed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth, just like it is in heaven. That more and more, the life of heaven would come to, uh, come to the earth. Therefore, that's the purpose of the book of Revelation. In the Greek word, it means apocalypse, which simply means to uncover. It's to uncover. It's to pull back the veil to reveal what's happening in heaven to encourage the suffering church on earth. So that's the first assumption. That there's a heaven and an earth, and, and Revelation's getting us a peek behind the veil, so to speak. And the second assumption is that the world is divided between two rivals. And those two rivals are God and Satan. Now, neither of these can be empirically verified. And the latter has been depicted so comically as a man in a red suit with horns and a tail, which makes it even more difficult to believe. But again, the first story in the Bible introduces us to a mysterious enemy of God, whose sole purpose is to deceive human beings and to tempt them to turn away from God. And later on in the scriptures, we learn that this creature is called Satan. He's a fallen spiritual being who is the chief rival to God and his kingdom. In fact, it's, uh, he plays pretty prominently in the story of Jesus coming to earth. 1 John 3, 8 says it plainly. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's the reason the Son of God appeared. That's what we see happening in the Gospels. And the Gospels depict this climax of the battle between God and Satan, where Jesus wins the decisive victory through his death and through his resurrection. So therefore, although he is a vanquished foe whose final demise is absolutely certain, Satan is still at work in the present, in the world, to deceive the nations, to destroy the church. The book of Revelation consistently reminds us that Satan is the real enemy who is causing the church to suffer on earth. He often works through human players, through human institutions, but he is the real enemy. It's reminding me we are in the midst, it's reminding us that we are in the midst of a great spiritual battle. Brothers and sisters, the Lamb has overcome, and all those who put their trust in Jesus will overcome with him in the end. That's the hope, the encouragement from the book of Revelation. So I put these, these two things before you because that second assumption is especially evident in the letter we just read to the city of Pergamum, to the church in Pergamum. Because you probably noticed it twice in verse 13. It says that Satan dwells in Pergamum. Like, what a thing to say about someone's city. You know, Satan dwells. His throne is in your city. Las Vegas is sin city, and I guess Pergamum is Satan city. And this is important because this is the only of the seven letters where this is said, that Satan's throne is in your city. So we've got to ask, what in the world does that mean? Well, friends, it certainly doesn't mean uh, that, that literally Satan has a street address in Pergamum, right? But what it means is this. What it means is that the city is so overrun with idolatry, that is the worship of false gods, that it could be said that Satan lives there. Remember, Satan's goal is to tempt people to turn away from God, from the true God, and to worship something else in his place. And so with so many options in Pergamum, it's like they're living in the devil's playground. You know, Las Vegas is called Sin City because of the prevalence of opportunities to sin. Pergamum is called Satan City because of the prevalence of opportunities to idolatry. By the way, I've been to Las Vegas. I had a great time, like a moral great time, so it gets a 
gets a bad rap. But anyway, so what, what am I talking about? What are the prevalence of these opportunities to idolatry in Pergamum? Well, for one, Pergamum was famous for its shrine to Asclepius. Asclepius is the Greco-Roman god of healing. So people far and wide would come to worship under the symbol of Asclepius. And that symbol was a serpent. And for Christians, the serpent reminds them of the form that the devil took in the very beginning when he tempted, when he deceived Adam and Eve. And that might have actually been in John's mind when he called Pergamum the throne of Satan. Interestingly, you probably know this, the symbol of medicine today is still a serpent coiled around a rod, which is taken from Asclepius. Now, I have to say this again. This is not saying that all medicine is satanic. You see why people get crazy with the book of Revelation, right? They're like, see, Asclepius is demonic and therefore all medicine. No, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Medicine is often the instrument God uses to heal people. I think the most recent obvious example is this miraculous vaccine. So, no, friends, medicine is not satanic. Asclepius is satanic. The worship of false gods is satanic. And furthermore, Pergamum was famous as the center of emperor worship, the emperor of Rome. As the capital of the Roman province of Asia, they were the first city to build a temple for the worship of Caesar as God. Here, in Pergamum, they were daily called to worship the Roman emperor. In Pergamum, the creed was, Caesar is Lord. And lastly, Pergamum was, so f- was famous for this cone-shaped hill behind the city that was just littered with pagan altars, as far as the eye can see, the greatest of which was an altar to Zeus, the so-called father of all gods. You see, so why does Satan dwell in Pergamum? Because Satan dwells wherever idolatry is to be found. And idolatry was found in abundance in Pergamum. Therefore, this letter to the church in Pergamum is written to tell them and to tell us two things. Number one, that idolatry is so, so dangerous. And two, that Jesus is so, so much better. Idolatry is dangerous, but Jesus is better. Those are going to be our our two points this morning. First of all, idolatry is so dangerous. So first of all, if it is as dangerous as I'm uh, putting before you, we should probably be clear on what idolatry actually is. Is idolatry just bowing down to these pagan altars like you see in Pergamum? Well, it is that. (laughs) But it's also broader than that. And idolatry, brothers and sisters, is just as rampant today as it was in first century Pergamum. My favorite definition for what idolatry is comes from a pastor by the name of Richard Keyes. He wrote an article called The Idol Factory. And he says this, an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. So it's an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. This is it's just so important because it helps us understand what sin is in the Bible. Like, it's not only doing bad things, like breaking God's commandments. It is that, but it's also when we elevate good things and make them the chief end of our life as a substitute in place of God. For example, work, a career, is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. 
but it can become an idol when it is inflated to become the chief determiner of your identity. When you have to have the fruits of that work, the success or the money, in order to be truly satisfied. You see? Or like family. Family is a great thing. But it can become an idol when everything else becomes secondary to either your parents being happy with you or your children being successful. Everything, we can look at everything. Alcohol is a good gift of God's creation. But it becomes an idol when we primarily, or maybe first, turn to it for comfort or from refuge from this hard world instead of God, instead of his people. You see, and this is why idolatry is so dangerous, because it's so subtle. Because they're often good things. Good things that we have turned into God things, into ultimate things that we must have in order to be happy. And friends, idolatry is so dangerous because it promises things to us that it can't deliver. But we believe those promises. We fall for the lies every time. Think about it. If, if you place yourself, if you were a, a Christian in first century Pergamum, why in the world would you end up at the altar of Asclepius, the god of healing? Well, it's probably because you're sick, right? And all other remedies have not worked. And what Asclepius promises is not actually just healing. He promises control over your situation, right? You cannot control the Christian god. There are, there are no rituals to force his hand to act on your behalf. The only thing you can do with him is pray and wait and trust in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that feels so powerless. You have no control. But it feels like you're in control when you go to the altar of Asclepius. When you do all the things you're supposed to do to curry his favor. When you make the right sacrifice, when you hope to receive your healing in exchange. You see what's happening? It's the promise of control. That's an illusion. Or why is it today that Christians end up at the altar of approval? Because it's promising us something. It's promising us contentment by telling you once you prove yourself worthy of the love and the acceptance of this, per this person or this group of people, then you'll finally be happy. You'll finally be content with yourself. And yet over and over and over again, what happens? We reach the thing that earns their approval, and we still feel empty. He's promising things that he can't deliver. Probably my favorite line from now probably my favorite Christmas movie ever, Elf, <laughs> is when Buddy the Elf says to the imposter Santa Claus at the department store, you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> I love that line. Friends, nothing could be truer. Nothing truer could be said of Satan. Through idols, he promises us things. He promises us control in an uncontrollable world. He promises us contentment in a discontented world, but he cannot deliver on what he promises. He sits on a throne of lies. And lastly, friends, idolatry is so dangerous because it leads to a compromised faith. It leads to a compromise of faith. It is so easy for our idolatries to simply be blended in to our Christian faith, where we can no longer identify one from the other. For example, it's so easy for our political idols to be woven right in with our Christian faith so they become one and the same. It's so easy for our American dream idol to be wedded with our Christian faith so that we end up worshiping both Jesus and money. 
It's so easy for our cultural idols to be melded into the Christian faith so that we, re- we remake God in our own image rather than letting him remake us into his image. You see? You sound familiar? And that's really what the letter to Pergamum is all about. John is calling out their compromised faith. He said, you've allowed the worship of God and the worship of idols to coexist. You are worshiping at the altar of Jesus and of Caesar, and you don't see it as a big deal. And Jesus says through John, this cannot be. You cannot serve two masters. But notice, friends, he commends their faith in God. In verse 13, he says, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. He says, even when persecution broke out because of the martyrdom of Antipas, you did not deny your faith in me. Yes, Pergamum has beautiful faith in Jesus. But then John says, but I have a few things against you. And everything that follows is, is a way of saying that their faith in Jesus has been compromised by idolatrous practices. In verse 14, John says that there are some in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What is this? Balaam's actually an Old Testament prophet from hundreds of years before when the time when, when Israel was in the wilderness en route to the promised land. And Balaam was hired by the king of one of Israel's enemies to try to cause Israel to stumble while they were in the wilderness. And so Balaam comes up with a strategy. His idea is this. Let's bring in foreign women to entice Israelite men into sexual immorality, which, surprise, worked. And not only that, they, these men also began to worship the false gods of these women. They fell into idolatry. And John is saying, guys, in Pergamum, you're, you're repeating the mistake of Balaam. You're messing around with sexual immorality, with eating meat sacrificed to idols by participating in the feasts at the pagan temples, but it's leading you into idolatry. And it's leading you. You may miss out on the promised land, just like that generation who all died in the wilderness. What he's saying is this is serious. It's compromising your faith. Or in verse 15, he says that some hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were false teachers in the same vein of Balaam, who taught that it was okay for Christians to mix the worship of God with participation in the idolatrous culture. The Nicolaitans are saying it's not a big deal. As long as you know that God is the only true God, do whatever you want. They would say, everybody does it. <laughs> this is just what, how you, what you have to do to get by in Pergamum, to, to not rock the boat, to blend in, and not cause a fuss. This is how you avoid persecution. To sacrifice to God on Sunday and to Caesar on Monday is not a big deal. And John is saying, it is a big deal. Because you're not just worshiping at a pagan throne, you're worshiping at Satan's throne. You're playing around where Satan dwells. Saying, wake up to the danger of idolatry. In our on-ramp community group that we hold here at Respres, which is, I guess, a sort of a plug for it. If you're new, you should come to this. But uh, in one of the sessions of on-ramp, I introduce you to a paradigm uh, or a model from a pastor named Greg Thompson who talks about uh, how the church tends to relate uh, to the non-Christian culture or world around it. And these options are either fortification, accommodation, or domination. Fortification, what does it mean? We withdraw from the evil world. 
We separate, we circle up the wagons, we preserve our Christian faith. Accommodation is just blend in. Don't rock the boat. Don't do anything offensive. Just get along and go along with the culture. And then domination, let's fight. <laughs> let's take back the culture for Jesus. Let's fight for our values. So you see the fight or flight, assimilate or fight. The letter to Pergamum is written to a church that has chosen accommodation. And it makes me wonder where we are doing the same things today. How have we compromised our Christian faith by blending it with cultural idols? Where do we say, this is just what you have to do to get along in the world? Where do we say, everybody does it? It's not a big deal. Everybody cohabitates before marriage. It's okay. It's what you do. Everybody does their own pleasure on God's holy day. It's Sunday fun day. It's no big deal. Everybody says things on social media they wouldn't say in real life. Just going with the flow. And John says, watch out. Idolatry is so, so dangerous. It's where the devil lives. He wants nothing more than for you to love something else more than you love God. What John is saying is, in the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Beloved, flee from idolatry. Run. Don't even hesitate. If you knew how dangerous it is, you would run away as fast as you can. And notice he says, if you don't, John says, Jesus is going to come to you with a sword. And I think this is significant. Because I think many in Pergamum were probably going along with the flow because they feared the sword of Rome. They feared persecution. if They didn't acknowledge all the cultural idols. And John says, hey, don't fear the sword of Rome. Fear the, double, the sharp two-edged sword of Christ. Because he's the true judge of all mankind. You see, idolatrous is so dangerous. But secondly, and thankfully... Jesus is so much better. I think it's so fascinating that John fights idolatry not just by telling them how dangerous it is, but by also telling them how much better Jesus is. You see, he doesn't just give them something to run away from. He gives them someone to run to. He doesn't just say, these idols won't satisfy you. He says, Jesus will satisfy your deepest longings. There's a hymn that was written in the 19th century by Miss Ora Rowan. We sometimes sing here. Verse 2 goes like this. It is so profound. She writes, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Hear what she's saying? In other words, how do you move on from the allure of your idols? Well, by catching a sight of something more alluring, more beautiful, more satisfying. By what one theologian calls the expulsive power of a new affection. She's saying, you will never cast off your idols until you find something better. And that something better is Christ. John communicates that Jesus is better by using two images. One hidden manna and a white stone. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who conquers, I will give, give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one accepts, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what in the world is the hidden manna? Well, remember, John already earlier talk, took us back to the time of Balaam, to the time when, uh, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And manna was this mysterious bread that came down from heaven every day to feed, to satisfy the people of God. It was their daily bread. It was enough to satisfy their hunger while they sojourned towards the promised land. So in other words, what is the alternative to this temptation to feast on the food of the pagan festivals? Is to be satisfied with God's provision, with the bread that he provides from heaven. And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that manna in the wilderness was a giant sign pointing to him. Listen to John 6, verse 32, 35. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven that satisfies the deepest hunger of the world. Our hunger for love, for belonging, for status, for forgiveness, for redemption. He is the one who refused the lies of the devil. He refused to bow the knee to the idols of the world. He is the one whose faith was never compromised whose heart was never divided between God and lesser loves, and he is the one who gives life to the world. This manna is hidden, notice, because the world does not see it. They do not recognize it. They don't see it when they look at Jesus. Remember, he came to his own, and his own people did not recognize him. But Christians have bread that the world knows not of. They have a spiritual union with Christ himself that is experienced by faith now and one day by sight when he returns. And he brings us into the wedding supper of the Lamb. And friends, oh, the satisfaction that day will bring. See, the hidden manna is Christ in all of his fullness. And the second image is that of a white stone. Now, there are several interpretations of what in the world this means, but I promised you in the book of Revelation not just to give you all the options, but to tell you what I think it means. So, in context, I think this is the best interpretation. There was this, there was this custom of giving guests who were invited to a feast a white stone with their name written on it, like it was a ticket of admission. This is what got you in to the party. And I think this is so significant in Pergamum, because if the Christians are really going to abstain from these idolatrous, idolatrous feasts, it's going to come at a great cost. It's going to come at significant social and economic cost because not only are you missing out on the fun of what happens at these parties, but you're missing out on the center of social life. You're missing out on where business transactions get made in these pagan feasts, at these temples. You are now on the outside looking in. Before long, it's, prob it's probable that Christians would no longer receive the white stones as invitations to the feast. 
what John says is this, brothers and sisters, you are not missing out on the true feast at all. Because Christ has given you a white stone with his very name on it. This is the name that gets you into the party of parties. This is the name that opens the doors into the greatest feast the world has ever known. Notice you are given Christ's ticket with his name on it. It doesn't have your name. It doesn't have your sins, your past, your reputation. That's your old name. You are given a new name and therefore a new status, which is in Christ. And this is, I think this is such a beautiful picture of what faith actually means. That Jesus takes everything that belongs to your name, your sins, and he gives you everything that belongs to his name. His righteousness, his forgiveness, his victory, even over death itself. Everything that belongs to Christ is now yours. And this alone is what grants you admission to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, he's using these images to, to remind us, friends, idols are so dangerous and they never satisfy, but Christ is so much better. He gives himself to us as heavenly food. He satisfies the longing heart by faith now and one day by sight. Once again, I, I love that the grand conclusion, underneath all this imagery and interpretation, the grand conclusion is rather simple and ordinary. And it's something we do every week as a church. What does John do? He threatens with the sword, and he promises us the manna. What else is the sword but the word of God? The living and the active double-edged sword of God that cuts the idols out of our hearts like a master surgeon. And what else is the manna but the Lord's Supper? The bread and the wine by which we commune with the living Lord and get just a taste of that final feast that is to come. See, the answer, as always, is word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. We were talking yesterday morning at the Men's Encouragement Network gathering, which was excellent, by the way. And all men, you should come to the next one. But some, so we, we got talking about uh, the transience of Madison. And the question was basically, given that Madison is so transient, and you may only get like two or three years of people in your church, <laughs> what do you hope that they take away from their experience at Res Press? What do you hope they take with them? That's a great question. And I said something like, I hope that amidst all the confusion today about what it means to be a Christian, that we recover the roots of what Christians have been doing for hundreds of years, which is every seven days. They come together as a community and they feast together on God's word and on God's table. Because what, what else will remind your heart of the dangers of idolatry? That as you place yourself under God's sword every week of his word, allow him to cut out the lies of the evil one. What else will remind you that your soul satisfaction is in Christ and in Christ alone, but by taking bread and wine to remember just how much he loves you? Just how great what he has planned for those who love him. We make it so complicated. <laughs> what else is it that enables you to love God and neighbor? It's always word and sacrament in the community of the church. So brothers and sisters, let this word remind you today that idolatry is so dangerous. But friends, let this table remind you that Jesus is so, so much better. As the end of Revelation will say, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb.
Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are hungry beings. That's what it means to be a human being, is to have a hunger for satisfaction. Lord, we look for it in so many places. Lord, open our eyes today to see the danger of the idols that surround us. On the ways we are attempting to blend even our idols with our faith in you. Lord, help us. Help us to flee, to run from idolatry. But Lord, help us to run even faster to you. The bread of life which comes down. Lord, help us to know that by feeding on you by faith, by taking you into our, in our very souls, by having union with you, help us to believe already and not yet that you are our soul's satisfaction. Give us a taste even at this table. Lord, it may be unsatisfying. It's just a taste. It's just a little piece of bread. Lord, set our hearts on that feast that is to come when we will actually reach our home. We will actually be at peace. We will dwell with you. We will find our soul's deepest satisfaction. We'll set our hope, set our sights on that. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.